You're listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Well, I hope you're plan- not planning on calling the podcast or Kara's going to have to intervene with Grace. A little, I'm going to call learning disabled. Learning challenged. <laughs> All right, welcome to Hammer Factor. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, go ahead. You got it. <laughs> welcome to Hammer Factor, episode 60 of the Hammer Factor. My name is John Gray, show producer, and I would like to introduce my co-host, Outdoor Alliance Policy Director, Lewis Geltman, co-owner of Immersion Research, John Weld. How's it going, fellas? 60 uh, episodes. Aren't people getting sick of us yet? I thought this was 59. Well, it says that on the show. It's hard to explain. Weld, can you explain that? I can. You did a show without me. You didn't tell me. <laughs> oh, that's the explanation we're still talking about that to explain, really. <laughs> I'm just telling you the facts yeah can I ask you something has anyone seen a prion cocaine in the wild I actually saw one on the river the other day where uh, the day we paddled the trust there's a guy in a cocaine it's molded the word cocaine is molded into the boat it's not like a decal that they could have changed if they wanted to. That's the only one. I haven't seen a cocaine. I fly to South America with that. You get taken into like a back room at the <laughs> for 12 hours. Well, we got an exciting show um, lined up for you. We have a leading climate scientist on the show uh, with a, from a PhD uh, from MIT. All kinds of accreditation um, for Mr. Tom Farrar. Uh, also, he must be super rich, right? That's how it works. The climate scientists just—it's all big money-making conspiracy, right? He's just sucking big, in the George Soros money. Will he'll he'll delve. Big climate. <laughs> he'll 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 delve into say, that. Every time I hear that, it's like like not only is it absurd, but it, it, even as like a conspiracy theory, it makes no fucking sense. It's like if there's I mean, if you're willing to pretend that the science is equivocal in any way, shape, or form, like there's like fossil fuel companies like lining up to write you checks. It's like if you want to make money faking <laughs> science, it's like and you're doing it in defense of climate change, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know? I don't know. The, it could be like a <laughs> an illusion of control that the government's got in place. Um, I don't know. We'll find out. We also have J.T. Hartman on the show. <laughs> who uh, put on a study uh, titled The Differences in Core Rotation and Maximum Forward Reach Between Whitewater Kayakers Using Feathered and Unfeathered Paddle Blades. So that I, ought to be uh, uh, interesting. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bite my tongue until I hear, I hear what, this, what this gentleman has to say. Yes, yeah, so, so basically we I have... I can't this <laughs> Yeah, this was it's an advanced biomechanics study um, published December the 11th on the day that we are recording. We'll have a link to that in the show mo- show notes. We'll hear what JT has to say. And essentially, I believe that this study gets to the bottom of it. So does he, does he also prove like the Dagger Crossfire is the best whitewater boat ever designed? Period. We can ask him. <laughs> we can ask him when he gets on the show. <laughs> Um, but anyway, we got two, uh, two major league guests lined up. It's going to be really good. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. 
Lewis, what is going on in your world? Man, I, I don't have a ton more to report since last week, honestly. I feel like I was feeling pretty optimistic about this public lands package coming together last night. We got some pretty good news about the state of negotiations on this Emory County, Utah public lands bill. It's been a little bit contentious, but it's, it's shaping up to be pretty, pretty sweet. So I, I, you know, I think that that's kind of a linchpin on this thing coming together. And then I woke up this morning and Trump and it's like sniping at Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer over this border wall scheme. And, you know, again, like if we, if we shut down the government over this border wall, uh, you know, the, I think all of this work is going to fall by the wayside because it's, yeah, I mean, it's just not going to happen if, if everybody's at, at each other's throats about this war wall nonsense. So I don't know. I mean, we're going to, we're going to carry on. I, I think outside of that, which is obviously outside of our control, um, things are, are moving along. So fingers crossed. Um, and then I don't know. Do you, do you want to talk about this uh, this waters of the U.S. rulemaking? Should we just like build the wall so we can get these things in there? I mean, uh, I mean personally, or <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that's outside of my professional responsibilities. Uh, but I mean, mine too. It, it's just, I mean. F- Five billion dollars. It's like they just trot around these numbers for nonsense. It's like just for the purposes of Trump placating his political base. It's like, just give me a break, man. I don't know. Let's get into Trump EPA proposes big changes to the federal water protections. What does this have to do with stream flow and navigability and what's considered navigable and how does that work? It's complicated. I haven't really been, haven't refresh my memory on how all this works in a while but basically there's been a long long running dispute over the scope of the epa's jurisdiction under the clean water act like what water bodies are subject to regulation which means you know essentially protection under the clean water act and there were a couple of supreme court cases in like around 2006 that uh, like affected the scope of the rule, like kind of talking about the ability of EPA to regulate wetlands that have sort of a less clear, um, like surface flow connection with streams, um, how the EPA is able to regulate like ephemeral streams, meaning, uh, rivers that don't run all the time. And, <clears throat> Uh, there was like a Bush administration rulemaking and I can't remember, I think it might've gotten shot down in court. I'm, I'm, I have to refresh my memory on all this, but there was an Obama administration rulemaking that was pretty expansive and the, it's been a big target of polluters who, you know, just don't want to see the clean water act applying to, you know, as many water bodies as possible. So, I mean, but I don't know, this is all super in the weeds. Like what it really comes down to is what every single kayaker on earth knows, which is that small streams go into bigger streams, go into bigger rivers. And if you don't protect the small streams, you're not protecting the water quality in the bigger rivers. And so this, uh, this rulemaking is basically aimed at like scaling back 
what water bodies are protected under the Clean Water Act. And I'm looking at at you know the headline from E uh, and E News this morning, which says EPA falsely claims no data on waters of U.S. on waters in waters of U.S. rule. Um, apparently, the EPA and the Corps of, Army Corps of Engineers, which also has some jurisdiction here. So that at least 18% of streams and 50%, 51% of wetlands nationwide would not be protected under the new definition. But uh, EPA has been saying they don't have that data, but uh, e had basically foia it already, and they do have it. So they're already you know, lying about what they know about this rulemaking. Um, it's something that's going to affect water quality in all the places that we paddle. What's going to happen is it's a proposed rule that's out now. There's going to be a comment period. We will help make it possible for people to submit comments on this. They're probably going to go ahead and finalize the rulemaking in a way that's bad, and then it's going to get litigated again. What so, industry benefits the most from this kind of this kind of thing? Um, I think some of the mining, agriculture. Agriculture has always been someone who's like an industry that's made a lot of noise about the scope of this rulemaking, but under the Obama administration's version, there were still like a ton of exemptions for the agriculture industry. And it was hard for me to see the connection between their anger and what was actually in the substance of the rulemaking. I think the, the home building industry has been a big, uh, uh, opponent of this rule because they're concerned about, you know, what wetlands are subject to jurisdiction. They want to just be able to, you know, fill wetlands with impunity without concern that they're, um, you know, connected to jurisdictional water bodies. So let me ask, is the Little White considered a navigable waterway? I believe for the Clean Water Act. So it's it's confusing because navigability is a term that has like very different meanings in different contexts. And so for as far as your right to float on the little way, I believe it's navigable, but that's under state law under the Clean Water Act and navigable body is like the Columbia. But because the little way has a really direct connection with the Columbia, that would still be jurisdictional, I believe, under even under this interpretation of the Clean Water Act. But then you know, it does, it excludes groundwater in a lot of ways, which is where all the Little White's water comes from. You know, all of those small surface streams that only run after it dumps rain, those would be ephemeral. So I think those would be excluded under this interpretation of the Clean Water Act. So, you know, you wouldn't be able to pollute directly into the Little White, but you could pollute some small water body that would find its way into the Little White with much more impunity under this version of the Clean Water Act. Makes sense. Jurisdictional rules. Savage. It seems, uh, so it seems like as far as like LWCF, all of the public lands bills, all of that, it's kind of being held up by the wall at this time. Is that where we're kind of at? It's just everything's on a standstill. Well, we, we haven't quite gotten there yet. I mean, I think the, the key congressional committees are still what would be are still negotiating what would be in this package. Then leadership has to agree to attach it to the year end funding bill. But if there's a government shutdown over the border wall, then 
it means basically they're not going to pass that funding bill. The government's going to shut down for some indeterminate period of time. And then when people come back, our expectation is that nobody's going to want to hold hands about public lands. So I don't, I don't know. It's all, this is all like a, a degree of speculation at this point, but that seems to be the, the predominant interpretation. When is this session over? As of now, well, I, I guess the session, nothing's really like set in stone, but the current funding bill expires uh, the 21st. 21st. So that's kind of what we're operating under as the assumed deadline for all of this. Crazy. Well, still, outdooralliance.org. Get on the email list. Lewis, you'll keep us up to date on anything that needs to happen, any last minute yeah please and it's going to be that's what's if this does happen what's going to happen is like the package is going to come together and then we're going to kind of need everybody to jump reach out to their members of congress lean on them to be pushing leadership to include this in whatever the year-end funding bill is so there's going to be a minute here when on like relatively short notice we want to be able to apply like maximal political pressure so stay tuned very cool. Outdooralliance.org. Get on the email list. It's definitely, uh, you won't get any spam. Everything you get will be important. I can promise you that. Thanks, man. Um, let's see. Where do we go from here? We sold about half of our Whitewater journals, guys, which is pretty exciting. Nice. Um, I have some in the mail to you guys. Hey, you know what? If I have one regret, regret from my paddling career, it's that I didn't take more notes and didn't document more of what I did. So um, we still have some of those left. We only did a hundred of those. We've got some good listener mail here. Seems we kind of struck a nerve, Lewis, with our uh, social media and public lands. I know. I feel like I got more heated about that than I do about zinky stuff. <laughs> Um, we've got some great things on climate change here. Carl Whip writes in, uh, are you guys ready to get into some listener mail here real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Carl Whip writes in, and this is, this is at the top of the list. And he does, how does parenthood change you as a paddler and raising children in the paddling community? I'm not sure if we've brought this email up, but we are going to get into this one. But it's way more than we can just touch on as we go through uh, list, listener mail. So, I think we need to bring on the anonymous paddling parent guy. <laughs> Cover this one. To chime in. <laughs> so, so, Carl, no, we're going to, we're going to get into that. He, he has a wide range of expertise, it turns out. <laughs> you know, I had some dialogue with ABRG. He, he lives a fantastic life. I mean, I I can't really say what's going on because it may blow his cover, but let me just tell you, he's amazing. Yeah, he's, um, who was the guy for Dos beer? Uh, The most interesting man in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Comes to mind. ABRG does qualify as that person. 
Um, this comes at us from Fred Morrison. Um, so this past summer, I switched back to a straight shaft showgun from the bent. Aside from two days of reacclimating, it has been a great change. The one thing I've noticed is that I feel my boof stroke is stronger and more precise. Think there is any science to that, or is this a figment of my imagination? Fred Morrison. P.S. Okay, a little shit talking. Well, how can you say you hate food trucks and then the same episode say you are a partnership with big mans? Let's, let's, let's address the first thing first. I think he's right about that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I think that way. Because, you see, I switched to a bench shaft paddle when I was teaching a bunch, and I used to get really bad tendonitis at the beginning of every year. And if you extend your grip, extend your arm, and like for a full reach of force over the bench shaft, your pinky is closer to your body. And when you pull in that paddle, you're, not putting, you're putting sort of an equal amount of pressure across the, 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 your knuckles, right? You know, you're, you're pulling equally. Um, I think when you use a straight and, and I think that does relieve some kind of stress in your wrist and probably does prevent tendonitis in some rare occasions um, but I think when you paddle the straight shaft paddle you're, you start pulling with your, with your tip of your hand a little bit sooner than the rest of your grip and I, or, you know with your pinky I think that does seem to give you the feel that you're getting more of a bite off the, off the at least the front part of your stroke but I think that also has aggravated your wrist a little bit. That's my theory on it. Does that make sense? I, yeah, or that might... makes sense. I, I think the problem with bench shaft is they lull you into – you don't have a proper catch before you start pulling. You, you... That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. 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 In so, a roundabout way. I think you have in – the, in, the, in the food truck thing, the food truck thing he, he, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. If you listen to the show, <laughs> I said I didn't want food trucks at the takeout to the green a bunch of other rivers. You take out – you don't need that crap there. There's nothing wrong with food trucks. You need to come and to he IR. Better cut, he better cut it out. He better <laughs> cut it out or he's going to get he's gonna get banned from the show. I wouldn't mind a food truck at the takeout. That was throwing that out there. Fred, Fred may be our first band listener. Is that what I'm hearing? Probation. Okay. I'm just saying. Okay. Okay. Watch it, buddy. Um, This one comes at us from Bobby Miller, guys. I really enjoyed the latest episode, and pleased to see the idea for the one wheel shuttle is gaining steam. On Kaleva's advanced Canada (laughs) trip this past summer, Steve ran most of our shuttles on one wheel. They go really well on gravel roads of Quebec. The only issue we had was battery life. Um, the North Fork of the, <laughs> the issue that he had was that it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. Keep, keep reading. I love uh, this. <laughs> now that they make one that can go for 15 miles, I could see the one-wheel shuttle becoming even more useful. I agree with you 100%, Bobby Miller. Lithium-ion technology, <laughs> if you... <laughs> If you doubt okay, lithium, all, this, <laughs> this one wheel discussion is the biggest example of buyer's remorse that I've ever seen in my entire life. These guys buy these things with the illusion that they're going to use them for shuttle. They find one cockamamie place where they can use it for shuttle. It doesn't work. The battery runs out. The guy has to stash it in the woods <laughs> and finish walking the shuttle. And they're talking about how great it is. Uh, first of all, get a bike. <laughs> We'll run out of we'll run out of batteries, right? It's about five times as fast, and you don't look like a complete douchebag on the side of the road riding this. Hey, I'm just telling you, Bobby. You might, you might actually burn a calorie or two while you're at it. Bobby says the North Fork of the Blackwater, Lower Blackwater, seems like a perfect fit for this idea with the railroad grade going through the canyon. Um, 
But how are you going to get it to the take? I mean, you're still going to have to walk the entirety of the way up to Douglas Falls, right? Figure, Unless you listen, like... If you spent $1,500 in this stupid thing, Gelb, you would figure out some way of incorporating it into your ridiculous shuttle team. <laughs> hey, I'm a firm believer, and I think that the one wheel will be a staple of shuttles in the future. That's we'll all I'm see, saying. Won't we? That's... <laughs> um. Okay. So. Okay. We got through retarded. One wheel talk. Fred Morrison's band. Hey. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. Here we go. The SOR. Okay. So Jonathan Rue comes at us. He's uh. He's sort of the chief of the strategic outburst reserve. He says, "I appreciate Lewis's policy discussions. I'm trying to get a little clarification on what." public dick kick means thanks for giving me something to listen to while everyone is out paddling i'm stuck in my workshop making paddles that don't have a 60 degree feather john so what what do you mean by a public dick kick uh you know like when people are are publicly squabbling like if they're just up out on cnn kicking each other in the dick metaphorically i don't know is that that opaque <laughs> so so today when pelosi and schumer and trump were in the office going over everything was that a public dick kick uh i don't know it seemed like they were trying to i don't know i i, I honestly i couldn't even watch it because I, I turned it on for two seconds and i just couldn't take any more of it immediately so i'm not sure if they actually got into the dick kicking yet the dick kicking is going to come later when Pelosi and Schumer are being interviewed, and they're like, "This guy's now to lunch crackpot." And Trump starts talking about the Democrats shutting down the government. That's the dick kicking part. <laughs> God. God. That, that clears up a lot. Um, all right, well, we got time for one more here before we got to get J.T. Hartman on the line to really put this paddle offset thing to rest with some true research. So that'll be good to hear. This comes at us from Bobby Voigt. Hey guys, I do agree that going to beautiful places for the sake of social media exposure is shameful, but I think there are still positives for sharing our world of kayaking online. In our modern age, more people need to be exposed to these places in a way that enforces respect of the land. People won't care about or fight for the environment unless they go out and experience nature firsthand. Online kayaking videos are what inspired me to go explore beyond the city life of the East Coast and find something greater in the wild. Don't go telling all the secrets, but give a hint so that people who are meant to find them can know where to start looking. Bobby. Lewis, what have let's, you say? Let's read that one from uh, that other. There's somebody else who wrote a good one that you just sent on email previously, too. Let's read that, and then we can talk about this some more. Did that one make right. it on this list? Um, hang on, I can bring it up here real quick. Don Gately. I got it. You want to read it? Sure. Um, Don Gately writes, Not only is posting media from the same six runs contributing to the crowds, it's also cliche and boring. And for runs like the L-Dubs, Upper Cherry, etc., I'm sure the concentration of media is contributing to the crowds. That said, keeping other runs secret is only going to exacerbate the pressure on the few marquee runs that everyone is already talking about. Want to reduce pressure on Upper Cherry? Post up rad photos from the North Fork San Joaquin in a proper adventure that typically flows at the same time. Tired of sharing wolf, wolf track camp with the same 90 people you see every <laughs> other weekend at the L-Dub takeout? <laughs> Perhaps think of ways to get more people stoked on the NAS Mathco Iskit. Every person exploring a new or previously unknown run 
is one less person angling for a selfie at the Oregon slot. So if you discovered a great run, assuming it doesn't have access issues, please share beta widely. P.S. The Seven Rivers video and blog were hugely influential for me and catalyzed a 10-year High Sierra obsession. Over the past decade, I've been fortunate to get on most of the High Sierra multi-days and some fantasy middle kings multiple times. If one avoids upper chariot, medium low flows, crowds are really a problem on the Cali multi-days, especially the ones with a high suffer factor, e.g. post pile and kings. That's a good, that's a good email. Um, I'm, I'm like with both of these guys in a way, you know, I think that maybe I've become extra especially crusty about it because it's not, it's, to me, it's not even so much the, the, all the kayakers showing up the little way. It's, all the Portlanders hiking in to Spirit Falls and just causing really savage erosion down there. There's a private property owner right at the at the start of the hike in who obviously has some weird ideas about I shouldn't say weird ideas, but is obviously concerned about the access situation there. We're seeing like a ton of erosion down there. You see you know, starting to see like garbage down there. And it's it's not so much the kayakers as the fact that the kayaker social media feeds into this broader, I don't know, just deal of like attracting people from Portland to the same handful of hikes in the Columbia River Gorge for the sake of going down there and like taking a selfie and posting it on Instagram and just feeling the same thing over and over again. And so, you know, as annoying as I find the the you know the the way kayakers you know talk about it or share it or whatever it's much more that that fuels into like a broader ecosystem of social media fueled exploitation you know and i just i guess it would be fine if those things were were staying within our own little world but that's not really how it goes you know so should we go back to boater talk I mean, because at least when you were on Boater Talk, there weren't a bunch of, you know, Portlandiots tapping in on everything that was like making it on their news feed. You know, it was just your paddling group that was seeing these pictures of Little White and whatnot. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also interesting, too. Like, I wonder, you know, like for Upper Cherry, you know, I think part of the reason people experience it is so crowded is just that, you know, like in a good year, there might be a week when you could run that thing. It's like sometimes I think about that with like the green too. It's like maybe one of the reasons it feels so crowded sometimes down there is that it's a dam release and everybody gets crowded into the same like one or two hour window every day. Oh yeah, especially in the summer. Like you could go out there right now and you won't see anybody. I mean, you could paddle totally. for a week and you won't see anybody. So like if it were twenty four hours of water, it would be a totally different deal. Hmm. I think this is going to be like the uh, paddle offset. I think it's going to keep rearing its head as we move forward. All right, you guys ready to uh, figure out exactly what's going on with this paddle offset? <clears throat> yeah. The real question is, is JT ready for his peer review here? <laughs> his public is dick kicking. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the most hard-out, useless defense he's going he's gonna to face, I think. <laughs> well, Lewis, you seem to have some inclination of where this is going to go. I really don't. I'm... I'm Hey guys. Hi. Hey JT, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, we're already pissed off. 
you, you, you don't you don't even know the results yet. How can you be pissed off? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, we're just angry. Um, so JT, you along with Elizabeth Pruitt and Jamie Lang recently, I guess of today, have published a study in advanced bio, uh, biomechanics called the differences in core rotation and maximum forward reach between whitewater kayakers using feathered and unfeathered paddle blades. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you go to school, and just kind of give us the background on all this? Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, it's not like the study isn't like a peer-reviewed, published research study. It's not like out there for the world to see or anything like that. Um, um, I go to school at the University of Puget Sound. It's a small liberal arts university um, in Tacoma, Washington. Um, so we've got a really great whitewater kayak club, really awesome program. It's been awesome to be involved with them since being here. Um, uh, I'm an exercise science major. And so that kind of feel deals a lot with biomechanics and anatomy and physiology. Um, a lot of those types of things. And, uh, this year for my, uh, biomechanics class, the professor said that we could design our own research project. So I got a crew together and, uh, Got him fired up about looking at paddle offset. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so where, give, where did the inspiration come from for this? Line? What's that? Oh, I'm just curious where the inspiration came from for this line of inquiry. Oh, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, it, it stems from, you know, being in the kayaking community and listening to everybody argue over you know, the proper offset bent versus straight shaft, the, you know, proper length and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, the opportunity came where I was able to look at some of these variables and how they affect the things that we care about as kayakers and, uh, figures might, might as well go for it. Sweet. Okay. So start off by telling us what you did. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we had, um, six subjects, all of whom were involved in the University of Puget Sound Kayak Club, uh, come in and um, essentially what we did is we had them sit on, um, it's essentially like a rowing machine, but for kayaking, kayak ergometer. Um, and we filmed them using a GoPro uh, from above so that we could see how much their shoulders were rotating back and forth and how far forward they were reaching with each stroke. Um, and then we went in and, uh, we put reflective markers on both shoulders, their knee and their hand, uh, and went into, uh, a video analysis program and, um, digitized each one of those points. So we clicked on every point in every frame of video for each subject. Um, and that spits out a bunch of data, you know, it's pretty much, it spits out exactly where each marker was for every frame. Um, and from that, we can identify the total like core rotation, so maximum angle to the left and maximum angle to the right, and the farthest forward reach, which we um, called you know how far past the knee is the hand at the point where the hand is right in front of the knee. Okay. Okay. And so were you did you? Did you do anything looking at how vertical your forward stroke was? No, we weren't able to look at that. Um, we would need more of like a three-dimensional 
camera setup, I think, to be able to, to really identify that well. Um, so that was kind of outside the scope of our study. So essentially you, you determined which, and so you just did 45 and zero, correct? Is that right? Yeah. 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 And, and you, you determined which is best for rotation between those two, which is best for reach between those two, and which is better for comfort between those two. Yes. Well, we didn't, we didn't ask um, about comfort, but core rotation, yes, and uh, forward reach, yes. Okay. Do you guys have any questions before we find out what the, the results <laughs> should we, are? Should we, should we guess? <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to see what you guys think is, is was fine. I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess that with a lower offset paddle, you're paddling with like a much lower angle on your stroke. So you're probably getting better rotation and less extension. So I'm guessing more extension for 45, more rotation for zero. Weld? I'm going to reserve comment. <laughs> well, this is the first time in the history of the Hammer Factor you've ever reserved comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hear it. So what, so what did you find? Well, after spitting everything through you know, a number of programs to find out statistical significance and whatnot now give um, me the numbers here give me you you've got a plus number, or minus deviation there that i saw on the study lay, yeah. lay that out for me the the very base of our findings is that for both reach and total core rotation the zero degree condition improved both of those variables okay so essentially the zero degree paddle is better for your reach and for your rotation essentially is the better feather offset for paddling. That's what, that's what our study showed. Yeah. I know you guys don't like to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I guess my, all right, can I start? So this is my whole thing. So with a zero degree paddle, you have to change your control grip. There's no way you can just hold it like this and just go like that. And then and do it without getting all like cattywamped. Okay, so you're changing your control grip. It's sliding with one hand or the other. If you're in like a crazy paddling situation and you need to like bust out like five strokes, how are you going to get like the same stroke rate? Oop, opening grip, closing grip. Oop, how does that work? That same argument has confused me for like the 45 degree offset too. And looking at it from like a perspective of what changes when you cock your wrist, your right wrist back if you're a right hand control paddler. Like the those differences to me seem like they wouldn't make that much of a difference for the problem that you're talking about. Hmm. And so for me, I, I've paddled a zero degree um, since I started kayaking um, and to as far as improving comfort. <laughs> Oh man! Here we go. <laughs> you just you just tilted your cards, man. <laughs> Listen, I saved that for the, <laughs> the, the whole. This whole thing started was was because in teaching kayaking, you, you know, you would, you know, you need to ha you need to have you need to adjust your grip when you paddle, right? Um, as from one side of the other, and so we were. I just kept seeing people with zero or lower than thirty degree offset. Um, grip and and they would they would fail to get a control hand they would just hold the paddle in some sort of halfway position and 
maintain the, the same grip on both hands. And as they paddle, I would watch their, their wrists sort of cocking forward like that. And they were sort of like, it looked like they were digging in the sand as they were paddling with their, yeah, with their so they knuckles. Use like just their arms to paddle rather than their core. No, not just their arms, but rather than letting one hand slide and then regrip the paddle correctly to pull on it effectively, mm-hmm. their whole knuckle and wrist was curling down as oh, they paddled, I, I right? See. And yeah, that's how they make up for the control hand. And by going to a higher degree offset, it forces you to release one hand cleanly and crisply. And well, that I guess makes I would, your power pull better. And that I never mind. And, and then when I went on to watch people's lower off de- degree offset paddles do like like bow draws and vertical bow draw strokes as they as they pull their paddle around, because they didn't have a good control hand, they, they looked awful. They just looked awful. And this was really bad with beginner paddlers, but I also noticed paddlers I'd known for years who were good paddlers, experienced, who went to a lower degree offset paddle, and they reverted to the same cockamamie grip where their their wrist is rolling forward like that as they paddle. That was the beginning of this whole thing. And I would take it even a step further from there and say that when you do that, because (laughs) your top wrist is in this weird cocked position, it encourages you to paddle like really low as if you're just taking sweeps all the time instead of taking proper forward stroke and like putting you know, your energy into driving the boat in the right direction. Right. That's what I'm saying with the bow draws. Cause when they to do those bow draws with a zero degree offset paddle, it gets really weird because their hands start to do really weird things as they approach the brow draw stroke. That ver- those really vertical strokes. Well, I would, I would argue based on like, well, that I, I think it sounds at least to me and I've done, you know, lots of instructing through the club and I've got ACA, you know, that whole deal and whatnot. Um, but I would argue that, that weird like cockamamie weird wrist offset thing that you're talking about is more about correcting technique and less about like using a paddle as a tool to correct it like that that's like a 45 to 60 degree offset like you're talking about sounds like it would correct that issue automatically but i don't think that it's completely necessary to have an offset blade to correct those issues but I think it is because when you bring your top hand up to vertical, like if you're taking a forward stroke on the left and you're a right hand control paddler and you, your wrist just like turns over naturally. Right. And so if the paddle doesn't have an offset, you have to bend your wrist down to have the, the blade in the right position for the catch. Or you have to switch control to, hands. If you just right, turn your, switch control hands, you know, if you naturally take a good forward stroke, your wrist like naturally turns over. And so, like, where that feels comfortable is depends on the, the offset of the paddle. So if you have a really low offset paddle, it's going to feel comfortable for doing sweeps and paddling really low all the time. But if you have a higher offset, it's going to feel more comfortable to have a more vort- vertical forward stroke, which is what you want to be, like, effectively putting power on the boat. Right, right. And ideally, I, I, we would have been able to also look at force production for each condition as well. Um but that also was outside the scope of what we were doing. Um, but when you're when you're talking about like your wrist turning over, like your up your offhand wrist turning over, what direction are you talking about? Like your wrist moving is like a forward like back it, motion. It, it like, goes like this. Like if you if you hold a paddle like a like a like a zero feather paddle and your top hand and you're gonna dig a stroke with your left hand. If you if you lock hands, you don't release one. Yeah. You, when you go up, your your top wrist is going to go like this. You know what I mean? You're going to get like up over oh, the top okay. of your paddle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, so now, like if now, you know, if you re- if you let that hand slide 
it'll be proper. You'll be able to reach out instead of being like this. You know what I'm saying? So, and and with the zero degree, you can fix that, but you got to change your control hand each stroke to to do that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you, there's just no way to get that paddle vertical without that top hand going. You know, you can't yeah. you can't be pushing like that with a loose grip. So I want yeah. to see the study replicated where we're measuring how vertical your forward stroke is and doing the whole thing like in the pool and having people do sprints and see what, you know, like what somebody's time is on like a 10 to 20 second sprint with the sure. change and I, see, and, offset. and I want to see the ergonomics of your wrist to forearm angle yeah. as you do bow draws and bow draws into forward strokes. But I do think that if I do think that if you I, I do think that if you switch your control hand, if that's the way you learn to do it, that the zero degree can be just fine. Um, but that, that's I'm not control hand. I'm not expecting to like change the hearts and minds of hundreds of kayakers that paddle offset blades with this. It's just like you know the results are what the results are, and you can criticize the study any which way you want, but. If you, I think, if, we, we, like, if, if we're going to have a point of view, if we want more core rotation, if we want more forward reach, which I think most kayakers do, especially if you're looking to increase, increase power output, then starting beginners off with the best possible resources to maximize those variables, I think, is the way to go. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but those are just variables that are in service of, you know, making the boat do what you want in whitewater, right? Right. So it's like you gotta, the test has to be, you know, how effectively are you able to, you know, generate power in the boat or, no, you know, I, I just like includes dealing with like yaw basically, right? Like if you're paddling really low angle, you're just going to be sweeping the bow back and forth instead of driving the boat forward, even oh. if the ergonometer says that you're putting a ton of power out. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's definitely, you know, this this like specific area of research has never been looked at before. Um, as far as I know, we we couldn't find any previous studies done. Um, it's kind of a niche area. To be, <laughs> I guess. Um, Dude, I love it. I love it. Don't, you know, don't, I, I think this is super interesting and I see what you're saying. I, I, I can, I can kind of see what you're saying, but there is no way to comfortably do it without changing your control hand, which is scary when you're in hard whitewater like releasing your paddle and doing all that shiggy shuggy, you know? I think there's also a lot of, you know, open room for people to look at different ways to adjust that because I've experienced in my own paddling, like I'm not letting go with a paddle in hard white water to, you know, get my wrists in the right angle. I'd like to think that I'm paddling efficiently and, you know, with proper form and technique. Um, and what I've found for myself is not necessarily rotating my wrist back, but allowing my, pinky and like ring fingers on my right hand if I'm taking a left stroke to slide out a little bit that way I still get you know really good solid grip with my first two fingers and my thumb and I'm not changing I mean I, I see what you're saying with the changing control hand um, thing but just shifting your position your wrist position out a little bit has helped me a lot did you uh did you control for what offset people normally use like did you notice if like was it a bunch of people doing the study who typically used a zero or typically used a 45 and did they do better or worse based on what they were already acclimated to? Yeah, we had a, a pretty solid mix actually of people that typically paddle 45 or 
30 or 60 and people who paddle zero degree. Um, I think we had four subjects that usually paddle an offset blade and two subjects that usually paddle a zero degree. Um, and across the board, it was the zero degree was better for everybody. Huh? Very interesting. Well, you yeah. are, you are not alone in your camp JT because <laughs> I know I, when I was sitting at the table, when I was in DC with you, Priscilla, she was just so hardcore about zero degree offset. So, um, oh, man, JT, you're brave for coming on here. You had to know that we were going to, this is going to be the hardest, the hardest interview we've ever had. To. I, most contentious we've ever had to be with a guest. <laughs> no, I, 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 I appreciate Don, Don you. Was trying to get Mike Lee on at one point. And I think we softballed him a little. <laughs> so can we, can I publish these findings on the show notes? Is there a way for these to be, to be available to the general public? Well, yeah, do whatever you want with it. It's uh, there's no like copyright issues or anything like that. They're all yours to do with what you want. So, give us a little paddling background. How long have you been paddling? Tell me about some of your paddling experience. Let's let's hear a little bit about you. Um, I've been paddling for about four and a half years now. Um, I started just right before my senior year of high school. Um, family friend got me into the sport and uh, taught me how to paddle a little bit. And once I got to school here, I uh, joined the kayak club and was able to progress, you know, as far as personal boating skills, teaching skills, just general like knowledge of the sport. Um, and it's been awesome. It's been it's been really great. And uh, I mean, you guys know how it is. You, you get hooked and you never look back. <laughs> uh, I've been trying to quit for years. Um, it's ruined my life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so did the person who taught you teach you with a zero degree offset? He, yeah, yeah, that was like the first paddle I bought. Just happened to be a zero degree. I got to get that guy's number. We got to oh, cut. We got to cut this off at the source. So, fight against this Parker here. He was of the opinion that it doesn't really matter, right? He was like, "Well, some people like an offset. Some people like a zero degree. Really, it's just whatever you learn on. As long as you're using the proper technique, like everything's going to be fine." Oh God! <laughs> so what's what's the club scene like out out there? Is the club scene like is it is it like is it is it thriving at, at that club? Yeah. I'm always interested in. I think clubs are such a good thing that don't get enough attention in our sport. Yeah, our club has um, somewhere between like 35 and 45 active members. Um, we have uh, a coach, um, Clay Ross, who's like an official university. I don't know if he's an employee technically or what, but he's there all the time to help people. Um, we have like an instructor course at the beginning of each year where people who um, we feel are proficient can come and, you know, go through this. It's based off of the ACA course. Um, and so we do a lot of the same technical proficiency stuff, learning how to spot mistakes. Uh, and then we bring people into the pool. We have pool sessions twice a week. Um, and we usually have three, like, club centered trips like actual river trips each semester six a year um yeah it's a lot of fun that's cool very cool very cool um all right well i jt when you get your next phase of the study done and uh you know get your head out of your ass we'll have you back on <laughs> <laughs> 
it. You should uh, get some of your friends to. Do you ever go like take pictures at Spirit? <laughs> okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah, we're we're working on not tagging it. If that's what you're in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, man, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so yeah, much for reaching so out and sharing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Let me know if you guys have any more questions about it. I'm happy to answer whatever you have, whatever criticisms you want to throw my way. Let's get the data up on the on the show notes because I'm sure we're going to hear from the, the teeming <laughs> millions on this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty <laughs> thorough. It's it's really good. I, I certainly enjoyed reading it. I mean, it. I, I read the whole thing, so. That's that's saying something. Good job, man. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we'll see that on the Hammer Factor, and thank you so much. Right on. Cheers. Yep. Well, I thought that was really good. I think uh, JT handled himself quite quite well in that. That's a tough. He's a tough crowd. That's uh, for sure. Yeah. He, uh, but he's done nothing to help help push this rebellion down. That's that is for. <laughs> All I know is there is no way to do that without switching your control hand if if you don't want to get that top cocked wrist. You know exactly. what I, mean? you, you I have, think there are and, some, some study and, design issues there. And when you when I sit in a pool and watch these pool rowing sessions, I watch all these people paddling around. People with low asset paddles are just curling their wrists around. None of them are bothering to to take the trouble of doing that switch control hand thing. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, you know. Anyway, there you go. Um, we'll have that in the show notes. We, 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 we need a counterpoint. We got to get Sylvan on the on the show because I'm sure he'd have something to say about this. No, I think that's a good idea. Um. Okay. So let's see. We I, should. I think Sylvan probably have have few words about this. I think he would just laugh and be like, like zero. No. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be it. That'd be the end of the discussion. <laughs> Been U.S. team coach forever, and uh, <laughs> oh man! Well, what is uh, what's what's Evan use? Evan Garcia uses what? Forty-five, sixty? I think he uses. Like that. I think he uses a forty-five. What's what's the annual use in, in uh, Jerd? Annual's got a forty-five. I've asked him. Um, How about Noria? We didn't ask Noria when she came on the show. I don't remember on that one. I mean, she's from a small background. She she has to have a high offset. I, I can't imagine anything else. Isaac told me one day that Vavra uses like an 80 or an 85. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> My DR washing off the taint of that, that last interview. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lewis. It's 80 degrees and 210. It's a 210, 80 degree. Oh, man. My first battle that I owned was a 80 degree offset Norse that I believe was a 206. Right. (laughs) My first battle was a 90 degree flat Norse. That's why I'm left hand control. Because you can be either, either control hand with that setup. I was yeah, because at, at the lake at Valley Mill, <laughs> Valley Mill. Flat mohawks or flat 
courses. Yeah. 90 degrees. Choice, take <laughs> pick. The choice was zero, zero or 90. They, yeah, you got mocked relentlessly if you used a zero. They handed, and, you, they handed you a scarf and a 90-degree paddle. And and they, they didn't have, the paddles didn't have power faces, so like half the kids would just pick it up and naturally start paddling left-hand control. And I remember Ben Lewitt at one point realized that this plague was of left-hand control paddling was like infiltrating the campers, so he put indexes on all the paddles so all the kids would get their acts together and not turn into left-hand control paddlers like well there me and like eight of my paddling friends from that era okay well i feel like we're like thalidomide babies we're like a a, a, a cautionary tale from a far gone age (laughs) okay moving on um that was really good. That'll be in the show notes. Have to check that out. I'm sure we're going to get some fantastic listener mail from that one. Okay, for this next segment, I'm going to go ahead and check out. Yeah. Fun, guys. <laughs> so I do not. Let, 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 let me introduce it here. We had we got an email here from Tim Bragan. Uh, gents, awesome <sighs> Tim show. Hello. Tim Bragan, Valley Mill. Um, Tim Bragan was a CIT at Valley Mill when I was a camper. You! <laughs> Tim Bragan! Oh, you! Jim! Tim! Tim! Tim says. Gents, awesome show. Please keep up the good work. <laughs> I was just talking to Neil, the same one Lewis recently told to go fuck himself, about how crazy this year has been. <laughs> Dude, I feel like Bob and Tom here. We just can't stop laughing. We got to get into this. <laughs> Where was I at? (laughs) Tim Bragg. Tim says, I was... Okay, Potomac, DC. Um, (laughs) About how crazy this year has been on the Potomac. DC is about to clinch. It's wettest year on record. (laughs) Can someone else read this? (laughs) I can't even look at Wild right now. (laughs) Well, the glasses are fogging up. <laughs> Hang on, I'm, actu- I'm actually covering up the camera. Okay. Um, uh, DC is about to clinch its wettest year on record, and I don't think the river has ever dropped below three feet all year. It's barely been below four feet, and Center Shoot Wave has been in more than Maryland Shoot. Crazy times. The federal government just released its climate report, and it might be interesting to have a climate paddling expert on the show to talk about what this means for the sport. How will rivers and the paddling season around the country change over the next few decades? What sort of new opportunities will open up as a result? What will be the best paddling location in 10, 50, or 100 years? More importantly, will the western snowpack diminish, and can we interpret that some sort of karmic judgment on Weld's recent decision to sell out the East Coast? Is the next century of global co- climate change actually his fault? Tim. Okay. So, so there are, uh, it seems to be that that's the case at this point, but what we've done is we have found an MIT professor um, from the Department of Oceanography 
Um, this is one of the most accredited scientists on the planet today. Just so happens I went to high school with Mr. John Thomas Farrar, and we will see if we can get him on the show. This is like getting a colonoscopy. <laughs> I know. I feel like I've read Tim's email, and it's like, it's. I appreciate the glass half full look at it, but it's like every time I start thinking about climate change, I'm so despondent that it's like hard for me to even think about whatever the possible upsides might be. <laughs> well, we have uh, Tom. Are you there? <clears throat> yes. All right. Well, we have uh, Tom Farrar on the show. Tom is an associate scientist in the Department of Oceanography at, what do you call this um, operation, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute? Yes. Is that correct? And you have a PhD from MIT in oceanography, and you are here to clear some things up about climate science for us. So let me pull up my notes here. Tom, you're on the show with uh, John Weld and Lewis Geltman. So, little known fact, Tom and I went to high school together, um, spent a good bit of time together in college. He went, we went to different we colleges. we just talk about that instead of how, what bad shape we're in? <laughs> just focus on you and your shenanigans in high school. Oh, God. I don't think yeah, we, we want to... We need to just take like a, like a break every five minutes for some John Grace-related levity to lighten us up. <laughs> Did you describe John Grace as a popular guy in high school? Not so much. <laughs> that actually answer. Uh, yeah, yeah, popular. Huh? Really? Yeah. Like a jock, or what was his what was his niche in, in high school? Well, uh, uh, John has always been a good guy. Uh, but he was a wrestler. I don't right. know if you guys knew this, but of course. <laughs> and I used to cheat off of Tom in calculus class any chance I could. He he may not know that, but I tried my best. But uh, <laughs> anyway, Tom has went on and done some crazy things. And uh, essentially, give us a little background into your career. Um, we'll eventually get into the $30 million grant you just got from NASA. You and your team just got from NASA. But tell me a little bit about, okay, you left Indiana, went to OU, and give me a little background of how you ended up with a doctorate at MIT. Okay, so I went to the University of Oklahoma and studied uh, physics and philosophy there. And I was going to go to graduate school for physics but right at the end of my undergraduate, I figured out that there was such a thing as ocean physics. And I thought, oh, man, that's pretty cool. I should apply to that. And and so I did. And I also applied to physics programs. But uh, oceanography seemed really interesting. And so I went to this program at MIT. And so I was there in a joint program with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, uh, studied air-sea interaction, and uh, a lot of our classes in this graduate program, it's like, it was a program in atmospheres, oceans, and climate, and uh, so the classes were together with meteorology students and climate students, and uh, so I did a postdoc 
after I got my PhD at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and joined the faculty there. And I've been on the scientific faculty for about 10 years at Woods Hole, which we call HUI uh, for W-H-O-I. HUI is one of the world's largest oceanographic institutions, and uh, the oceans are a huge factor in the climate system uh, because they, you know, water can store so much heat uh, compared to air. I think the you know, if you took the upper three feet of ocean, it, it holds as much heat as the whole atmosphere. Or kind of, uh, uh, if you took the heat from the upper uh, meter of ocean and released, uh, cooled the ocean by one degree, you could heat the whole atmosphere by one degree. Uh, so it's, it's a huge difference in heat capacity. Uh, so it's a, a major factor in the, in the climate system. Hmm. Well, we just received an email um, a little bit ago, and it basically says the question comes up, uh, the federal government just released its climate report, and it might be interesting to have a climate expert on the show to talk about what that means for our sport. How will rivers and the paddling season around the country change over the next few decades? What sort of new opportunities? You you brewing some tea there, Tom? <laughs> Yeah, actually, my son was supposed to take it off when it finished, but. <laughs> um, what sort of new opportunities will open up as a result? What will the best paddling locations be in the next 10, 50, or 100 years? Um, first of all, let's just get to the bottom of this. Is is climate change real? Is this is this a made-up conspiracy by the government to maintain power over the people? <laughs> You know what are we what are we looking at? You know, as 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 Phyllis commenters in here. Thank you, Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it is absolutely real. I mean, the uh, global temperatures are increasing, sea level is rising. Uh, we've been measuring it, you know, and it it's clearly just going up and up. Uh, it's absolutely real and definitely. Uh, there is natural variability in the climate system, but uh, us releasing greenhouse gases definitely affects the global temperatures. You know, this leads to global warming, and we know it for sure. Uh, so, yes, it's real. <laughs> if things continue at the next for the next 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, what what are we looking at? What like realistically when you and 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 your friends sit around and talk like what's give me some of the scenarios. Oh. <laughs> well. Uh, so I mean, yeah. It, we're on a trajectory for continued uh rising temperatures and uh that's definitely going to keep going for a while, even if we take drastic actions to stop it. But, uh, you know, so that could be depressing and it's like, why even bother? But I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I, you could compare it to the analogy of like, uh, you know, uh, you're driving your car at a brick wall 
and you can't stop in time should you even hit the brakes. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's better to slow down. Uh, Maybe it's better just to like, <laughs> you know, just floor it. Cash it in. <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, yes, it's bad. You know, there was this report that just came out a little while ago about uh, the 1.5 degree C scenario, which would would take like really really uh, drastic efforts on our parts, and it would still be really bad. Uh, you know, I haven't uh, gone over that report in detail, but but we're committed to a certain level of uh, really terrible impacts. Being an oceanographer, one that I know more about is uh, the fact that coral reefs are are dissolving and, and really decaying and by some estimates half the coral reefs are already you know really uh dead or damaged beyond repair and uh i don't know if, if you guys have gone snorkeling or scuba diving on coral reefs it's awesome uh but like our kids may not get to do that and if we even just stopped all emissions now we'd have uh I think that something like 70% of the coral reefs will be will be dead. Uh, but if we don't do anything, they could all be dead. You know, so I mean, it's like, do we want to drive this mass extinction or do something about it? I think we definitely should. Another aspect of climate change that you guys are probably interested in personally is changing in precipitation amounts and patterns. You know, the, I guess what we can expect to happen is, or the way that it works, the sun shines on the tropics, heats up the equatorial regions and the equatorial oceans, and that hot water evaporates into the atmosphere and it drives a big global circulation in the atmosphere. And so the, the water evaporates in the tropics and rains down on us in mid latitudes and in the tropics, uh, but sort of that's the engine for the whole climate system. It's the sun shining on the tropics, and all this heat gets transported from the tropics where it's put into the poles, and uh, and along with that, a big part of that is the moisture transport in the atmosphere. And the big patterns of rain are basically set by geography. I mean. Uh, the shape of the continents, you know, the oceans and the continents and where they're at drives monsoon circulations and uh, the global rainfall patterns. So as the atmosphere warms up more, the hot air can hold more water. And so we can have an intensified hydrological cycle. Basically, what it means is the places where it rains right now, it's going to rain more. And the places that are really dry are going to stay dry. Basically an intensification of the whole atmospheric heat engine, you could call it. Uh, so it, it's sort of uh, the water turns to vapor in the tropics and then uh, turns, condenses, releases its heat at higher latitudes and falls out as rain. So, so okay, go ahead. I Liz. know, 
I was just going to say, I, I feel like this might be like too small of a question given the subject matter. But... <laughs> he was like, how much rain are we going to get in White Salmon? <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, I was like, is it ever going to rain here again is really what I'm getting at. But, you know, in the Northwest, it seems like like the the meteorologists I pay attention to always say that basically the only tool that they have for long-term weather prediction that has any real legitimacy is um, El Nino La Nina. Mm-hmm. And based on that heating, is it just going to be El Nino all the time from here out? Or is that kind of a separate deal? Or uh, It's kind of a separate deal. I mean, so uh, El Nino has to do with sort of temperature contrast between different places in the ocean. And, and so you could, you could kind of warm up the whole system and you'll, you'll still have El Nino's. Uh, so we won't, Got we won't it. kick into a permanent El Nino kind of state. Got it. Are Thank there... God. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be okay after all. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, uh, I mean, I, we wouldn't expect kind of rainfall changes on small scales. I, I think it's kind of an amplification of the patterns that we already have is, is kind of the, uh, what most scientists expect under global warming. This may seem like a, maybe a question that's out of your expertise, but why can't we build something to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's out of my expertise, but I sort of, uh, interact with a lot of different scientists and and kind of come across ideas like this i mean i don't know there are different approaches you know you could try to remove greenhouse gases you could uh try to do things like make artificial clouds to reflect sunlight uh i don't know i think we so it's totally out of my expertise and at this point you guys know probably as much as me or or your listeners but uh you know, there are a set of steps that we could take of sort of increasing uh, cost and complexity. It seems like the first thing we could do is sort of, with policy decisions, scale back on how much we're putting into the atmosphere. Uh, the United States is the second biggest emitter, right? so, uh, you know, we could do something there. Is coal, is coal the, the, big, the big problem here, or one of the bigger problems? Or is it all, is it just any fossil fuel period? I mean, I don't think that it's particular to coal in terms of the physics. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the greenhouse gas emissions, we need to limit the CO2 emissions. Uh, and I don't know the breakdown of like what coal contributes versus other forms of uh, other things that cause CO2 emissions. Right. But at MIT, there's no like, machine that's going to come out and just like pull some greenhouse gases out and dump them down in a landfill somewhere or something well uh, you can't talk about it just wink or just like tug your ear and we'll know what you mean (laughs) i I, I don't know Uh, but i mean i think it's it's possible but my understanding is those things are basically energy intensive and and sort of costly you know uh forests are a good way the oceans take up tons of co2 in fact it's been really uh, helping us out a lot in that respect uh the oceans can really soak up and and consume a lot of co2 there you know there's a ton of plant matter in the oceans 
and also uh, they absorb a lot. You know, as we put more CO2 into the atmosphere, some of it just sort of diffuses into the ocean, uh, and that buffers a lot of the climate change that that we would see. Also, that works that way for heat, too. Uh, so the oceans have been heating up, and they have this huge heat capacity uh, compared to the atmosphere. So it's we haven't felt the full effect of the uh, net heating that our planet's experiencing. What about how? Go ahead, Lewis. I was just going to ask just how it feels to be working in this line of work right now. Like, do you wake up in the morning and you're just like weeping? Like, turn on the Hopefully. news. Like, I, I, so, I mean, I work on like public lands policy, and that's pretty much how my day starts is like looking at the news and then putting my head in my hands and just like gnashing my teeth in despair and then trying to pull it together to well, <laughs> do something uh, positive. Thanks for that question. I've been. Uh, my thinking on this has been evolving over the last uh, years. A few years ago, I would have said, well, you know, I just keep my head down. You know, I'm like kind of policy agnostic. I just want to do do my science. You know, I mean, like I'm just trying to figure out how things work. And that's fun for me. But now I'm uh, becoming not policy agnostic. The, the thing that I'm realizing is that... Uh, I used to think, oh, well, we just need to convince people, all these people who don't believe climate change is real, we just need to explain it to them. But uh, now I think that's not going to work. Uh, all the people who now think that climate change is not real, like, uh, don't, you know, will not be persuaded by rational arguments. So, I mean, no more, what other facts can we present to them? So, if they're not going to be convinced, I think what we should do is just focus on the people who believe it and, you know, we need to take action. Uh, so those of us who believe in climate change need to uh, make our voices heard. And, you know, if it means uh, yelling and shouting, you know, we need to stand up and uh, try to get political action because driving a Prius is not going to solve the problem. Uh, you know, it's a good thing to do, but we need I mean, which brings to the next question. I spend, I spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia, so I feel like I've seen the apocalypse coming. I mean, what, it just feels, it feels helpless, right? I mean, I just know the density of population there and, you know, for whatever we do here, we're going to be dwarfed by whatever's happening there. Never mind what's happening in India or other densely populated places that have almost no environmental you know, controls whatsoever in place. Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, well, I mean, population growth is like, yes, a, a big, uh, that's going to be hard to sort of navigate. Uh, and another aspect of this is that uh, developing countries it doesn't work that well for the developed countries that have already burned all the carbon to say like, Hey there, you need to slow down. You know, you're, you're messing things up for us. Uh, <laughs> my, my girlfriend is a tropical forest ecologist. And one of the things she studies is uh, use of charcoal in Africa. So there's a lot of deforestation because people cut down trees to, well, the cities are growing and, uh, you know, in order to uh, fuel stoves and things in cities in Africa, 
they really need charcoal because uh, even wood isn't that great for it because wood is heavy. So charcoal is light, but it's inefficient. And uh, so they're just, you know, cutting down forests to kind of power cities in the developing world. There's no easy solution. You could get them hot, hooked on uh, gasoline or uh, natural gas, but that doesn't, it's barely an improvement. Maybe it's even worse uh, for lots of reasons, you know, on balance. So what are we looking at, Tom? Give us, give us 20 years from now, 50 years from now. If things stay exactly like they are, give me, give us, give us some global, some sea level rise. Let's, let's just kind of hear some basic predictions. I know this isn't exactly your field, but. You know, I don't know what, I mean, you guys all know as well as me, what's going to happen if we do nothing. Uh, but it's going to be really bad. Uh, the part that's closer to my research. So I also spend time in, uh, like in India, uh, studying the monsoons and, you know, there's, uh, billions of people living in monsoon affected regions. And these places are where, you know, there's a lot of poverty. They're a couple meters above sea level and it's going to rain a lot and sea level is going to rise. And, uh, there'll be huge humanitarian disasters, you know, in the places where, uh, that are most sensitive to climate change. I mean, and, and also the people suffering are going to be the people who've done the absolute least to contribute to exactly. the situation we find ourselves in. That's right. And so, I mean, there's a moral imperative to do something, but I mean, also just a self-interest imperative. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, I can't say this is only my uh, gut instinct, but I think our quality of life will go down with everyone else's, you know, I mean, uh, we should really take action now to, uh, sort of do something about it because, uh, we're, it's our generation, you know, our children and our children's children can blame us for the extinction of, uh, coral reefs and, uh, you know, the loss of biodiversity on the planet, uh, ecosystems that are falling out of balance because of relatively, you know, small shifts or like changes of a degree or, or two degrees, uh, the effect this has on, on forests and forest ecosystems, you know, just slight shifts in the time onset of spring and the onset of winter, uh, can really throw everything out of balance. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's going to fuck the paddling. <laughs> well, it I, I, I went to this conference with the uh, the backcountry skiers advocacy group, and they had some research down they've done down the Sierras that just in the last ten years, the snow line in the Sierras has gone up fifteen hundred feet. In ten yeah. years, fifteen hundred feet, man. Oh, uh, that's brutal. Well, and so forest fires, uh, you know, I mean, it, it just has all kinds of implications, right? Uh, the the rivers are um out of whack uh you know there's not the water storage the the forest the ground ground is dry because the you know rivers are running all year long that you know there's not the snow melt in the dry season so what gives you optimism 
if anything. You know, what gives me optimism <laughs> is that... Uh, well, the brick wall is coming. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things. So what is on the gas pedal? Thing, <laughs> one thing is that, for example, I've, I'm on... Uh, I've served on the graduate admissions committee for the same graduate program that I went to, where we have uh, people applying to grad school to MIT to study climate. And it used to be when I went to grad school, it was like, I like physics, I, you know, I like uh, nature and oceans. And so I can study the physics of the oceans. That sounds interesting. Uh, now it, we have really smart people applying saying, I want to help save the planet. I think we have a problem, and you know the oceans are an important part of the climate system. Uh, so I want to do that, and that that's encouraging. But I think there's a, you know, it's one thing for the 20 year old kids to to be doing this, but uh, I think really I can feel momentum building among scientists where. We used to be just keeping our head down doing our science, and now people are, you know, I'm not the only one saying, oh, man, you know, we really have to do something. Like, everybody has to. And so better late than never, I think that where uh, attitudes are changing, and in a generation, there, you know, sadly, I think, in a generation, there won't be anybody that doesn't believe in climate change. And, you know, I mean, it's partly because... It's going to be, you know, undeniable when, when things, you know, as it progresses. But we have people but, who think the Earth is flat, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't give give people too yeah. much credit on that accord. Okay, maybe some people. Uh, I mean, more people than I ever thought possible. Oh man, Tom. Going back to Rivers here for just a little bit, you when I was talking to you earlier today, you were talking about a grant that you just got uh, to work on a project with NASA in relation to using satellites to study rivers, river flows, and whatnot. Can you, before we let you go, can you give us a brief summary of what that is? Yes. Uh, so I think it's pretty exciting for people who love rivers. Uh, so I'm involved with the NASA satellite uh project for a satellite that's being built right now it's called SWAT uh, surface water ocean topography and I'm involved with it from the oceanography angle but it's the first NASA satellite that's really devoted to uh, studying rivers and what it will do it's called an interferometric uh, radar and, and it will measure heights of water uh, with kind of accuracy of centimeters and it's designed to measure all the all the bodies of water in the world that are 100 meters in width uh, but it it has resolution down to 10 meters and so it will pick up lots of rivers and and measure their levels and the satellite will orbit will get complete coverage of the earth every 21 days but at many locations, you'll get maybe four uh, measurements every 21 days. Gauges from space. Exactly. Uh, space gauges. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really cool. I mean, uh, that's really cool. We'll understand a lot more about uh, river flow 
in 10 years. Uh, in oceanography and meteorology, there have been, we've been making satellite measurements for 30 or, well, 40 years, really. And we've learned so much from this uh, because it's just a global view. It's kind of, you know, you get years and years of measurements all year round. So what's something unexpected that you that you would learn for something like this? Uh, well, you know, I can't guess what unexpected thing we would learn. Uh, yeah, but no, but like for like our world. I can give an example. No, 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 like from the, from the past 40 years. You yeah. know, you so, got a lot of information. Like, what, I'm trying to figure out what you use all this information for, right? I'm sure, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of it there, but what, like, how does yeah. this translate? Yeah. Well, so, uh, for example, in the ocean, one of the things that we've learned from the satellite era is that the ocean is full of eddies. Uh with scales of like 50 kilometers or something hmm. it's just it's like a sea of eddies are these eddies always in the same place or are they uh are they moving around is it like chaos theory uh well it's a turbulent ocean i mean yeah. there there are some that are in the same place because of things like land effects uh hmm. and uh, but it's really like a turbulent sea with all these big, large-scale eddies. Uh, can you guys hang on for a second? Just a minute. Sorry. <laughs> hey, John and Oscar. That's like exactly what my kids would be doing. Like almost identical to what my kids do. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like Napoleon Dynamite throwing the little doll out of the school bus of a string. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what uh, And and we can't. Hey there. Here's my daughter Evie. Hi. Hi. And Hi, Evie. She needs to not know what was just happening with the others. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, so back to uh, the ocean eddies. I mean, this is a was an important discovery, and it it's unfolded slowly. You know, you get the first satellite data and kind of try to make sense of it in the old theoretical framework that we had for understanding the ocean circulation and it didn't make sense so we uh, try to interpret it you know are these some kind of large-scale waves that we're seeing no they're they're eddies and as we got more and better measurements it was clear you know the ocean is just full of these eddies and they turn out to be really important for explaining uh, the way things are transported around in the ocean, like uh, debris or uh, nutrients for biology. Does that uh, explain why all this plastic is gathered in one spot in the Pacific? No, but what's happening there is uh, really, it's the, the large scale circulation of the ocean. So uh, there's this, I was talking about this engine of the climate system. So you have heating at the equator and cooling at the poles and uh the way the ocean and atmosphere play together in that the uh a lot of it's influenced by the rotation of the earth and so when the one thing that's driven when that air rises near the equator is these strong east and west flows in the atmosphere uh like mm -hmm. on jupiter you know all the the sort of east west 
stripes that you see on Jupiter. I mean, the same thing is happening on the Earth. We have different scales of uh, east-west bands of of winds, but uh, so in the in the tropics, the winds blow to the west, and in the mid latitudes, like at the latitude of Seattle, the winds blow to the east. The in the jet stream, and and then the those winds blow on the ocean and it drives uh, because of the rotation of the earth in the northern hemisphere, the ocean currents are deflected to the right of the wind. And uh, anyway, that it leads to the currents converging around Hawaii, kind of. Uh, and it and so the, all the surface currents are going into the same place and it just uh, gathers the plastic patch there. Uh, and it, that's what sets up the kind of large-scale ocean gyres. Can and we go it, clean that up? Can we just go scoop all that stuff up and put it somewhere? Yeah, you could. And so, I mean, I think probably you could do that. And there's some interesting new research about this, uh, and it's related to this. A uh, Is this more big... bad news? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I study, like, in detail professionally is ocean eddies and uh, so there are these uh, 50 kilometer eddies that we talked about but then there are eddies that are like uh, 500 meters in size and these are uh, they're much smaller and uh, the eddies at 50 kilometers are basically just moving horizontally, but as you get to smaller and smaller eddies, they have a strong vertical motion, which, you know, maybe you kayakers uh, can imagine. Like, you know, that you get into a, a really strong, tight eddy, and, it, and it's also, like, sucking stuff down. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, we know and all so, about that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean... In fact, there's there's something like this happening on on kind of larger scales, like 500 meters. And what's interesting is if you put out like a bunch of GPS tracked drifters that stay on the surface, mm. and and leave them there for a while, you you get more intense eddies that are converging, just because of like details of the physics than the ones you can have eddies that rotate one way and have convergence in the center and eddies that rotate the other way and they they have uh, divergence in the center so things are moving apart the converging eddies are much stronger and uh, so you get these intense regions where things come together and so there was an experiment in the gulf of mexico uh, funded by money from bp as their sort of uh, penance for the Deepwater horizon spill and there was a research program where they released thousands of these drifters. And maybe they released, I don't know, hundreds of them in one experiment. And they all ended up, they started out spread over like a city the size of uh, Seattle or something. And they ended up all in the area of a football field. You know, just like got sucked into this uh, little eddy. And uh, so maybe we could use that, this kind of... Uh, eddy convergence to go and sweep up like massive amounts of the plastic uh when they converge into a spot are the are the depths of the ocean as mysterious as they that people make them out to be good question i mean it is true that we 
have, you know, we have very little measurements. I mean, uh, sort of before things are changing a lot over the last 20 years because we started making kind of uh, autonomous or robotic sensors or, you know, things that we just throw out and they transmit their data home by satellite. And that's made a big difference. We're learning a lot in the last 20 years, but uh, 20 or 30 years ago, there were, you know, regions bigger than, I don't know, Texas or something where nobody had ever made a measurement. Uh, and so in that sense, there's like, we're very, we've been very measurement poor, but now in the satellite era and with sort of autonomous or robotic sensors, uh, we're learning, we have much more measurements. We, you know, I wouldn't say more measurements than we know what to do with, but we, we're, we've kind of tipped over to where we have a lot more information than we used to. And we're starting to look at, be able to see things in detail. Uh, but it's true, you know, there, there are many species. I'm sure there, we only know a fraction of the species that live in the ocean. Uh, there's there's a lot to learn. Uh, I don't know. People say it's like we've done more to explore the surface of Mars than, uh, or the surface of the moon than the oceans. Uh, I think it's true in a way. All right. Well, we are uh, we're wrapping up here, Tom. Do you want to stay on for our final segment of the show where we do a rant or a rave about something that we're stoked about or something we want to rant about? Sure. All right. <laughs> so, on your face <laughs> so um, anyway, this is everybody's favorite segment of the show here. This is Rants and Raves. And I'll lead us off here. I'm going to rave about my 1986 Toyota four-wheel drive truck that I went driving around. We just got 20 inches of snow here in Asheville, and I went driving around to see how the roads were. And I pulled out not one, not two, but three SUVs out of the ditch who were stuck in the snow in my uh, that's a, that's, little Toyota truck. That's a great segue from the climate conversation, Grace. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I was burning tires in my yard. The other day. <laughs> how warm they were. <laughs> Who's next? I have a weird one. I want to rant about little bags of poop I've been seeing on the train. Oh, see? I'm not kidding. Dude. I've never really seen this before. I was at my parents' house this weekend and back in D.C., and sure enough, there are little bags of poop everywhere. everywhere. And they leave them. It's not – okay, finally, someone is agreeing with me. Have you ever seen this, Tom? Yes. Okay. I've seen it. Yep. I, I see them on the street, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I'm riding my bike to work. I mean, this is out in the woods. Like, on a, I mean, it's like a, you know, like a green space where it was like a trail, like a running trail, but they're mm -hmm. everywhere. I, I, I just saw a dozen in the course of an hour. Thank you. That makes me yeah. feel so validated. Thank you very much. There we go. That's a good one. Lewis, John. I've been thinking about this since like 10 minutes before we started recording and I still have nothing, but I guess I'll rave about surviving this horrible horrible drought by paddling my longboat down the middle really uh 
keeps things lively, keeps him motivated a little bit. It's been awesome having Andrew out here to chase as he recedes into the far distance in front of me. <laughs> so hanging in there, feeling ready if it ever rains again. All right, Mr. Farrar, Dr. Farrar, close us down. Well, uh, it's been a long time since I talked to my buddy, John Grace. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. Uh, and I was thinking about, you know, what could I share from from uh, John's oh, childhood? God. Yeah, but God. you know what? Yes. I actually, <laughs> I don't want to reveal any of it because it, like, all incriminates me or, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Nobody listens to this podcast. I, I can't think of anything. Right, don't like, worry. Uh, <laughs> can, we, can, we, can we openly say that the first time both of us went to jail we were together? Yes, we can. Yes, I, I mean, you know. Uh, what was the charge? My kids can't listen to the podcast. Uh, well, wasn't John's dad the the police chief? He was. He was in the SWAT department, like uh, leader well, of the SWAT team. So he could have got you out, right? Or was that sort of, it was sort a di- of just brushed aside? It was yeah, a different town. Different town didn't work out for us. Yeah, John didn't want to try that. I can't actually remember how that all got resolved. Uh, you know, I'd there's love a... to know. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it. I remember this one vividly. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to take that one up offline. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I ticked through every story I could think of and was like, no, nope, no. Nope. Uh, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on the Hammer Factor, Tom. Always a pl- Dr. Farrar. Always a always a pleasure. And I uh, can't wait for you to come down to Asheville, man. We got the whole posse down here. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. All right. I think. <laughs> all right it's gonna was, be all right <laughs> that was hammer factor 60 thanks for listening